Biblical love is not the absence of hate. In fact, biblical love is always accompanied by a corresponding hatred for both evil and error. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. And today, Tom opens the final book in the Bible to begin a brand new series titled The Seven Churches of Revelation. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, John the Apostle, while exiled on the island of Patmos, is continuing to write the things in the vision as first described in chapter 1. Christ Jesus' preview and instructions concerning future things. John records Christ's message to the seven churches located in seven cities in first century Asia Minor, but also to churches throughout church history in all places. Today, in the first letter, Tom will look at the church in Ephesus, known for its loveless fidelity. You'll learn of Christ's warning to the church of the deadly danger of losing its first love and how the church can recover it. And Tom, there are timeless and highly vital lessons for believers of all ages to learn today through these ancient letters to the churches in Revelation. Isn't that right? That's absolutely right. You know, in fact, we learn Christ's perspective of the churches in the first century, but also his perspective of the churches that exist today, of your church and my church. And we see trends in churches and Christ's assessment of them. It really encourages us to be engaged in the church and to make our church, wherever we belong, as healthy and as honoring to Christ as possible. And so nothing could be more encouraging and really insightful to us as we carry out the responsibilities we have in the local body of Christ to which we belong. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now here on The Word Unleashed. When you look at the seven churches and the letters to each of these churches, there are some different approaches that people take in terms of how to understand why there are seven and exactly what are these. Well, let me give you the different interpretations. First of all, the, there is uh, the obvious interpretation, and that is these are actually seven first-century churches located in seven cities in Asia Minor. That seems fairly obvious, and certainly I think that is true. Another view is that this, in addition to those churches, it also encompasses all the churches in the first century. And here's the way this argument goes. Just as the rest of the letters of the New Testament speak to all churches in every place and time, 1 Corinthians wasn't just to the Corinthians. It was to, to all churches, to all believers. In the same way, these letters characterize or are written to believers in all churches in every place. And it makes sense. Notice at the end of each letter, all churches are encouraged to take note of what is written. Look down at verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear, notice this, what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Even though the letter is addressed to one church, the promise is for all churches 
And ultimately, the instruction is for all churches as well. Another way to argue that this represents not only those seven actual churches, but it's in essence uh, written to all the churches in the first century, is Christ could have added a number of other churches in that region of Asia Minor. We know of a number of churches that were there. But the fact that he addresses only these seven and that these seven were on that major postal route and they were key hub cities implies that his instructions are not only for these seven churches, which they are, but also for the surrounding churches as well. Another argument for this is Revelation is, of course, filled with symbols, as we will see. And since the number seven occurs so frequently in this book and often speaks of completeness, it may well be that not only are these seven churches meant, but all churches are implied as well. So, seven first century churches, all churches in the first century. A third view is all churches throughout church history. That is, it includes every church in all times. A a fourth view that isn't as common, but it's out there, you may encounter it, is that really we're not talking about seven churches. It's really just a literary device for Christ to instruct all churches then and now. It's kind of related to number three, but a different sort of approach to it. And then a fifth view is that these seven letters actually are not primarily written to seven churches, although some who take this view would see that they're also written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. But they would say in addition to that, or perhaps beside that, some, um, there are successive movements throughout church history, and each of these letters represents those movements. So, for example, the letter to the church in Ephesus represents the, the time of the early church after the apostles and so forth, working through the rest of church history. And of course, that's a bit arbitrary, and, and you know, exactly where do you cut it off, and where do you start the next period of church history, and how it's represented in these churches, but that is a common view that is out there. So what is the appropriate view? I think as we go through them, you will see that a combination of the first three makes the most sense. There are seven literal churches located in seven cities in first century Asia Minor, but Christ intended these letters to speak to all the churches in the first century, and beyond that, he intended them to speak to all churches like ours throughout church history and in all places. So I I hope uh, that makes sense to you. Now, when we look at the the letters themselves, there is, as I think you understand, a repeating structure. In our English text, you can see that these seven letters all follow this similar structure, but frankly, in Greek, it's even clearer. So let me show you exactly how each of these letters unfolds. First of all, every single one of them begins this way, to the angel of the in whatever city church, right? You see that Greek structure is a little different from our own, but to the angel of the in Ephesus church, right? To the angel of the in Smyrna church, right? And so forth. Secondly, that is followed by this statement in every case. This says the one, and that is followed then by a description, a personalized self-description of Christ from the vision in chapter 1. So he begins his statement to the churches by saying, this 
says the one, and then he describes himself. Christ intentionally describes himself with one of the features from the vision in chapter 1 that is especially suited to either the needs or the condition of that church. The third element of all seven letters is I know. It's interesting. I, I was struck with this in, in the Greek text as I was reading through it just within the last few weeks. Again and again, seven times, Jesus says to these churches, I know, I know. And the word he uses for know here is a word that implies full comprehensive knowledge. It's not progressive gaining of knowledge, but rather I have this sweeping comprehensive knowledge, I know. It's a sobering reality that Jesus knows every church. He knows our church. He knows every church that exists in the DFW area, every church that exists everywhere. I know. Now that is followed by a con. A commendation of the good, and that happens in all seven churches except Laodicea. And then there's a correction of the sin in that church, and that happens in all the churches except two, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And then there's a call for repentance, where there is, in fact, a correction. There's an interesting pattern if you look at the seven churches. Think about this for a moment. There's seven of them, One and seven, as we will see, are in serious danger for different reasons. Two and six are faithful churches with no obvious flaws. And the middle three, three, four, and five, have a mix of strengths and weaknesses. So, I know. That's the third part of the repeating structure. The fourth part is this. The one having ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then finally, the fifth part of the structure is to the one overcoming, followed by Christ's personalized promise to the persevering believer or believers in that church. Now, with the final four churches, numbers four and five here in my list are reversed for no apparent reason. You'll see that when we get there. But both elements are still there. Now, look again at those five elements. The first two serve as an introduction to each letter, identifying the one writing and those to whom it's addressed. The third is the body of the letter, and then the last two serve as the conclusion of the letter. And that's the structure that we're going to follow with each of these letters as we work our way through them. So let's begin tonight with the first of these seven letters to the church in Ephesus. You follow along. If Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent." Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In this first letter to the first of the seven churches, Christ warns his church of the deadly danger of losing its first love, and he also explains how to recover it. With each of these seven letters, I'm going to use the same basic outline just as Christ does. So we're going to see the introduction to the letter, the body of the letter, and then the conclusion of the letter. So let's look then at Ephesus, a church known for its loveless fidelity, its loveless faithfulness. He begins in verse 1 with the introduction to the letter, the command to write. Notice verse 1 begins, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now as we discovered, the letters are intended for all the members of each church, but are sent to and through the key leader in each church, and that's the meaning of the expression, the angel of the church. But from this first phrase in verse 1, we are reminded of several important elements here in this introduction. First of all, we are exposed to the character of the city. It's to Ephesus. Just to remind you where Ephesus is, it's there in Asia Minor. This is a map, and you can see where the red star is. That's where the city of Ephesus is, right on the coast, close to the Aegean Sea in a strategically important place. Now, Ephesus is addressed first because if you leave Patmos, which is out in the Aegean Sea, and you go to the coast of Asia Minor, the first major city on that postal route I've shown you was the city of Ephesus. It was a politically important city. Pergamum was actually the capital of the province of Asia, but Ephesus was the greatest city of that region. Even the Roman governor resided there. It was a free city with the right of self-government. Its population was somewhere between 250,000 and 500,000. The theater, which still stands, in which I've, I've been and have held a A meeting there seats about 25,000 people. The great theater, there too, but the great one, the large one, holds about 25,000 people. It was a major city. It was economically prosperous. It was situated on a major trade route that ran from the Euphrates in the east to Italy and Greece in the west. In addition, two other major roads passed near the city. The ancient geographer Strabo describes Ephesus as the market of Asia. All of the goods of the east and of the west met in Ephesus. It had access to the Mediterranean through the Caister River, which flowed down about three miles to the Aegean Sea. It was the primary harbor at that time for the province of Asia. That became increasingly more difficult, however, because silt from the Caister River continually filled up the harbor. And even during Paul's time and before, there were a number of attempts to dredge the harbor, but it was eventually lost. But even in Paul's time, it was becoming less and less important because of the silt that was filling in that harbor. The ruins of Ephesus today, because of that silt process, actually are almost six miles from the Aegean Sea. The city was known for the Ionian Games, which in that day rivaled the Olympic Games in prestige and and were held 
annually. Although it was outwardly an attractive, prosperous ancient city, there was a dark side to Ephesus. It was known for the occult. According to Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 17, even some of the Jews who lived there were into exorcisms. It was known for its connection to magic and spells. In fact, the first century called books of incantations Ephesian writings. And in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, we're told that just those Ephesians who were converted to Christ, just the ones who were redeemed, had a collection of magic books worth 50,000 Greek drachmas. One drachma was about one day's pay, so they burned, the Christians who were saved, burned books of magic incantations worth 50,000 days' pay. Ephesus was also famous, and frankly was most famous, for the great temple of Artemis, or Diana, as she was called in Latin. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, There was a 35-foot-wide road paved entirely with marble that wound its way from the city of Ephesus out to the temple, which was almost a mile away. The area of the temple itself was larger than a football field. The roof was supported by 127 marble columns, each 6 feet in diameter and 60 feet high. The temple also served as one of the largest banks in the ancient world. There was an area in the back of the temple where your valuables could be held, and and many people put them there. It was considered one of the safest places. In addition, Rome declared the Temple of Artemis, and eventually the territory within a bowshot, about 200 yards, a legal sanctuary, which meant that criminals could not be arrested within the temple precincts or up to 200 yards beyond it. So you can only imagine uh, what happened as a result. It doesn't seem like a great idea, you know, having a bank and criminals in the same location, but this is the way it worked. Artemis was not a, a beautiful goddess. She was an ugly squat goddess with these series of multiple breasts protruding from her chest, ugly, deformed, but she was the goddess of fertility. And so there were a thousand priests and priestesses who served the temple with rooms in the temple for religious prostitution. It was an act of worship. The temple of of Artemis was one of the city's great sources of income. Each spring, they held a month-long festival to honor the goddess. It included athletic contests, plays, and even music concerts. You remember when Paul and his companions were in Ephesus, they were confronted by those who worshiped the goddess during their time there in Acts 19. Charms connected to the worship of Artemis were extremely popular. In fact, one of the the leading Olympians of that era said whenever he wore one of the charms from the temple of Artemis, he always won. And the one time he didn't wear it, he lost. They were widely believed to cure sickness and to bring good luck. And you'll remember that Paul's ministry 
in Ephesus ended because of a riot instigated by a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who was concerned about the effect of Paul's ministry on the sale of charms and statues associated with the worship of Artemis. That's when you remember, as I said before, they gathered in the theater. That great theater there seats 25,000 people and shouted for more than two hours at the Christians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So think about this. The area around the Temple of Diana was a strange mixture of pagan worship, ritual prostitution, financial deals of the highest order, criminal activity, and even the arts. That's Ephesus. But even in Ephesus, Christ had his church. And that brings us to, we've seen the character of the city. Let's consider for a moment the history of the church. Verse 1 says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now the word for church, as you know, is the word ecclesia. It simply means an assembly. Its etymology means those who were called out for a meeting. But by the time of the first century, largely that etymology was lost, and it was just a general word for the assembly. But in Christian sense, the assembly that was the church. In the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, this word ecclesia describes the assembly of Israel when they come together. In the New Testament, the word ecclesia is used of one of three things. It's used of all believers who are in the body of Christ. Jesus himself was the first to use it that way in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he said, I will build my church. It's used, secondly, of a particular assembly of believers in one local church. It's used that way, as we'll see in Romans 16, of one of the house churches. And then thirdly, this word ecclesia is also used of all the assemblies in a single city. And we'll see it used that way in Romans 16 as well, Romans 16.1. In a city the size of Ephesus, it's likely this third meaning that Christ had in mind. In other words, there wasn't likely just one church. There may have been several house churches, but clearly there was a church in Ephesus led by Timothy. Now, the history of this church plays out on the pages of the New Testament. Aquila and Priscilla originally brought the gospel to Ephesus in Acts 18, verses 18 and 19. Shortly after that, a powerful preacher named Apollos joined them and they discipled him, you remember, and taught him the way more accurately, Acts 18, 24 to 26. Paul first arrived in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, at the end of Acts 18, verses 18 to 22. And then he returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and it is recorded at length in chapters 18, but particularly 19 and 20. Paul spent almost three years building the church in Ephesus. So Paul was heavily invested in this church. In the late 60s AD, around the time of Paul's death, the apostle John, tradition tells us, moved from Palestine to Ephesus. And for nearly 30 years, John served there until he was exiled on Patmos for his faith. In fact, it was during his ministry in Ephesus that he wrote the Gospel of John and his three epistles. A number of other key New Testament leaders served in this church or these churches. You have Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, Onesiphorus, 
in 2 Timothy 1. You have Tychicus in 2 Timothy 4. When Paul wrote 1 and 2 Timothy, Timothy, his young son in the faith, was serving as pastor of the church. But there were a number of other elders besides Timothy, both lay elders and staff elders, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. So this was a church with a rich spiritual heritage of solid biblical teaching, incredibly spiritually mature examples. It was the most significant of the seven churches. In fact, it was the mother church. The other six churches were founded out of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, according to Acts 19.10. That's the history of this church. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.